Davis, thanks for joining us. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Yeah. So would you just tell us briefly who you are and what you do and who you do it for? Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Davis Orbach and I'm a mortgage banker and I do it for uh, cross country mortgage. So um, cross country mortgage is a top five lender in the country and um, I've been doing it for a while. That's awesome. I actually have had two careers. Um, started this North Carolina career in 2010. Yep. So awesome. Um, they're both about, I guess I'm coming on 14 years or 13 years. And, and the first one was 14 years. Well, good. Well, um, I thought a good rate, good way to frame the conversation would be to go back to that previous career and kind of talk about oftentimes we're seeing a parallel being made of the market in the last two years to the lead up to 2008, 2009. And I was wondering if you could help explain some of the differences that you have seen on the mortgage side that is different today than it was in the years leading up to the great financial crisis. Yeah, I, I think I could probably shed some light on it. I actually got out of the mortgage business in the DC area in 2004. However, I stayed connected with it and I was on the, on the building side. So I kind of saw it that from that lens as well. Um, well, you know, the big difference is what happened back then is in the early 2000s, so there was a census that suggested we needed to open up the guidelines a little bit. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac came out with Alt-Doc back then. I don't know if you remember. What's that? that? Alt alternate documentation was it allowed you to streamline the loan process. So it became it became not as strict on the underwriting side. Um, and that kind of started this whole process of, you know, then it, you know, in the 2002, 2003 timeframe, you started seeing the ability to do 95% loans up to like 800, 900,000, and you could do first trust, second trust. And a lot of times the first trust could be on interest only arms. And, you know, the idea back then was you could find, you know, property is going to always go up. So you just finance as much as you can. Right. And, uh, and as time went on, 2003, 2004, we started seeing those become 100% loans. So it was an 80% first trust, a 20% second trust. And then the documentation started getting less and less. Um, back then there was products that were, you know, they performed very well, but they were stated income, stated asset programs. When they first started, and most through the 90s, they were, you know, great loans. And they performed very well because it was, you know, 20, pretty strict, 20% down, 25% down. And you had to have good credit and you had to have all these asset reserves. And what happened in 2004, 2005 is not only were we doing these interest-only arms, but we were um, doing them based on stated income stated assets and it started out in that time frame to be where there was still pretty strict credit requirements and um then it became what's an arm before you go on uh, sorry it's yeah. an adjustable rate mortgage um so if it's a 30-year loan but it's fixed for a set time like a, a five-year loan would be set for 30 you know, it's amortized over 30 years but it's set for five years at a discounted right. rate and then at the end of the fifth year it becomes adjustable so that's right. when it got gets scary and then and a lot of people were on interest only payments and a lot of those programs became fully amortized after 10 years 
So it was setting up for, you know, craziness. And, um, and then the stated income and stated asset programs became the credit requirements became also the point where there's no real credit requirements. So almost anybody could buy a home and it didn't matter the limit. And it really got that crazy. Yeah. Um, and the difference now is that, you know, back then it was, it became wild, wild west. And this yeah. time I would say regulation, um, changed drastically in 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, and it hasn't gotten any less regulated. So we are not going to have the same type of housing situation due to, you know, loans getting, you know, out of control. So yeah. Might be other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. So um, when you say that uh, regulation, what does that mean for most borrowers or, or consumers? What does that mean to them on their end? Well, it, it's really the supporting documentation, the requirements up front, you know, how we have, it's all about qualified mortgage, right? That we've got to be able to provide proof that they can carry the payment. Um, so, you know, there is no stated income or stated assets anymore. We <laughs> have verified. to prove it. <laughs> yeah. It's all about proving it now. So, right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, good. Well, um, I, I wanted to kind of talk about uh, the impact of 2020 and 2021 and 2022 on your business. So if we could kind of start in 2019 where the market was leading into COVID, and then obviously we had COVID and there was a brief lull and then it kind of went crazy. So if you could kind of just walk us through those those yeah. few years and, and the impacts that it had on you and your business yeah. and, and the mortgage business in general. Yeah. I mean, t in 2019, I mean, I think for, for leading up to that time frame, and, um, I don't know if I'm exactly right about this, but we were in that low four, four and a half percent range for quite a while. Um, and 2019, we, began to see you know, rates you know, continue to trend down a little bit, but it was a normal normal business for the most part. I mean, we were doing you know applications and numbers similar to what we had done the year before. Um, and they were certainly good years, but not, not, not crazy. And in 2020, um, beginning, it was starting to look just like 19, really. Um, and then what happened when the pandemic started that's when really panic across the market started. And we went, I remember it like it was yesterday because I was in the process of locking a borrower in. And I went, had the conversation and went to lock it in and rates had jumped up from like three and a quarter percent to 3.75. And I called the person back. And by the time I tried to lock it back in, it was up to four and a quarter. And the next day it was, you know, in the five and a half percent range. And in and th and that time frame, it was like there was no liquidity in, in the bond market. So no, nobody knew where it was going to go. And it was in all, we were in all out panic. We didn't know if we we're going to be able to do real estate transactions. Um, I, you probably remember all that. Didn't yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of uncertainty. And when, yeah. you know, if you, in the markets, if there's a lot of uncertainty, it's, it's yeah. not good. Right. So, um, but what we, you know, what started happening is of course the government started purchasing bonds and then started settling things down. And we slowly saw that, settle down. I'd say March, April timeframe, we saw rates, you know, back into the higher threes and then it just kept going. You now and why was that? Why did the, why 
what was the reason to make that happen? Why why did they keep going down? Well, I mean, inflation was really low. I mean, all the economic data that you know the Fed looked for and and what keeps interest rates low was was moving that way. Plus, the, the you know the purchasing of the bonds from the government was huge, and um, and it just you know that continued, and you know at, at great volumes. So that just kept rates lower and lower and, then, and as you know they got into the what mid to low twos yeah and um and that's you know one of the it was that crazy phenomenon where the home was more important you know during covid so all of a sudden um you know people that bought you know that had you know recently um scaled down their home or buying a bigger home and 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 it was just it you know that continued through 21 and we saw the market you know the larger uh due diligence requirements and yeah. you know, all those things that we experienced and yeah. appraisal deficits and yeah you know, everything that came with that and the davis the volume was so uh, so substantial when the rates were getting into the high twos because it pretty much opened up and even somebody that refinanced at four percent or 3.875 percent were refinancing again and it was just the level of demand that got to a point where most of the banks couldn't deliver loans in 90 days, 120 days. So wow. companies like correspondent lenders like ourselves were able to still perform at, you know, a 25, 30 day turnaround. Why is that? Why, why does the bank take such a long time compared to you guys? What's the, what's the difference in I mean, a scenario like that? Banks are, are, are more regulated. Um, and there's a lot more red tape. I worked for a bank for a long time and there's and not being critical. It's just, I mean, more correspondent lender, that's what they do. I mean, everybody that works for a correspondent lender is we're doing mortgages. Um, so it's dedicate, you know, everybody's dedicated to that one, one target area. Yeah. All right. So can you compare, you were talking about the volume, can you compare that volume, like the 2021, your peak of 2021 to what it was in 2019, you know, on a percentage basis or something like that. I mean, yeah, I were think- you, I think triple. I think it went up two hundred percent. Wow! I mean, so you can imagine what the you know the the demand for and how much mortgage company staff the staffing. Yeah. I mean, just nobody could keep up. Yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. So, um, so you look back at that, and that kept that continued through through twenty one, um, and you know, almost all the way through. Yeah. And so, I mean, everybody was at full at that point, pretty much full capacity, fully fully staffed and ready for this volume. And then almost overnight, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, rates went you know from two point eight seven five percent in January of two thousand twenty two to seven and a half percent in October November. So these company, all of us that were you know understaffed in early. 2020 became you know to keep up with the demand staffed way beyond you know at double tripled their staff and so you've seen you've seen just huge companies you know get out of the mortgage business you know discontinue service yeah i mean we've had almost a a feast or a famine kind of situation yeah i mean you can see i mean we've been through cycles like this but not quite like this yeah not this quick yeah yeah so it's um so now we're you know, the industry faced them was faced with 
being overstaffed. So that's the layoff. So it's been uh, quite the two years. So when rates started to rise, um, I guess it was really kind of late spring, early summers when it started to have a significant impact on the market. What were some of the conversations you were having with consumers at that time? And what were they thinking versus when you're talking to a consumer in October or November, you know, in, in June rates were at five and there was shock, but in October they're at seven, <laughs> there's probably a little more shock. I think when it first started, it was like, you know, I think there was this belief, especially folks that were in new construction contracts, right. That were still a ways away from closing on the home and trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, nobody really knew. And I think there was a belief for a while as we got into the high threes and 4% range that, you know, it was probably going to come back down. You know, I think that was the thought process, you know? Um, and I think that the market seemed to absorb that movement from threes to fours pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it caused concern for sure. But when it got into the fives is when, even then it seemed like, you know, okay, you know, when do you, you know, when do you think rates are going to go back down or where, where do you think they're going to go? And then when they got in the sixes, that's when it all, you know, everybody got really, really quiet, <laughs> really nervous. And then the sevens was, yeah. yeah. And now, you know, now we've, the interest rate topic is no longer, well, it's still, it's still something we talk about a lot, yeah. but um, it's not like it was three, four months ago. Why is that? Why do you think it's, why, think why it's, has that changed? Are people just getting used to it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plus we've seen it go from its highs to now we're in the low sixes. So, yeah. I mean, that sounds high, but <laughs> there's, yeah. but compared Still to some now, stability, it's great. And, yeah. and we had, we have been telling people that what we're hearing is that rates will come back down and there's a lot of reasons behind it. And, um, I think, I think a lot of the public does see that as a yeah. possibly. So I think they're a little bit less worried about it. Can you talk about some of those reasons? You know, a few of those reasons that you and others believe rates will come down? Yeah. This, so inflation concerns have been one of the main reasons for the rates going up. I mean, it's, it, um, interest rates follow inflation for the most part and always have. And, um, you know, when we, we had a conference in Las Vegas and, um, one of the companies that we listen to that predicts bonds is M MBS highway. And, you know, what they were telling us was that it was going to be a tough summer because what's, um, the, the primary data for inflation is the consumer price index. Um, and in no, I guess June, July, August, and September, those figures were really, really low one year ago. And so economically, when the Fed looks at that, they look at from one year, you know, um, where was it a year ago this time? And so when they look at the charts, it, it was going to make look, inflation look like it was way out of whack in, in the right. summer months. And but what they told us is to hang in there, October, November, and December, um, you know, it was really high a year ago. And so that has, that has been true. So when the CPI came out in October, November, and December, it has shown um, that it's you know, right around where it was the year before. So that 
the fear of inflation stabilized some. Um, yeah. And I think where we're at now is that some of the, I think the Fed's still looking for the employment data. I mean, it sounds bad, but I think they're looking for layoffs. Layoffs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and if, they, if, if that does happen, <clears throat> it's recessionary. I think that typically in a recession, interest rates go down. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing, we actually saw that today. We saw yeah. um, jobless claims go, uh, I think, up more than they expect. Or, or, um, so and I think there's there's key data to tomorrow and Friday as well. Yeah. So. Um, one of the things that, and I'm asking this because right before we walked in here, I saw the Fed raised a quarter rate. One of the questions, or a quarter percent, excuse me, Fed fund rate, yeah. one of the questions that, I hear oftentimes from folks is, well, the Fed raised their rate, so mortgage rates are going up. But oftentimes it can be the inverse of that. Can you talk about that correlation and, and what it means and yeah. what mortgage rates actually follow? Federal funds rate is really what is a guide for the short-term rates, like credit card rates. And um, the long-term rates, they tend to follow it a little bit. Um, but a lot of times what happens is they've already you know, the markets have already planned for the Fed doing what the Fed's doing. Probably in this in this case, the the markets were probably potentially expecting it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they've, it's priced in. So it does, um, It the general public is surprised by that sometimes. Yeah. 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 All right. So I want to start as if we're a consumer and let's put our, our buyer hat on and we decide we want to go buy a house. We call you. What kind of discussion are we having from day one? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to want to, you know, kind of get to know you a little bit, you know, b build some rapport and kind of understand what we're trying to accomplish um, and, you know, find out what the, the major reasons for what they're trying to do. Um, and usually through that, you can determine, you know, what, what are the next questions to ask. Um, I think it's the key, the key is to building some sort of rapport and trust right in the beginning. Um, and I, I mean, ultimately the easiest way to go through a pre-approval process is the online loan application. But I, I tend to think that people want to have a conversation before they get to that. And I, I like to talk to folks and try to figure out what, what they're looking to do and then, you know, get to know them a little bit. And then ultimately, you know, talk to them about the next steps, you know, that the best way to really understand the you know how to get a feeling for what's the best program for them, what's the best interest rate, is to really go through the pre-approval process. Um, and a lot of folks tend to want to put that off, you know. But really, and why I, is that? Why do you think that? I don't, is? I don't know. It's a, a misconception to some degree. I think that some folks feel like that if they submit a loan application, that it's like the final decision is being made. Or, yeah. And it's really just a working document. It's really a, you know, it's a tool for us to help them. Right. You know, I mean, guide them in regards to, you know, if there's things that need to be tweaked to put them in a better position, um, you know, to qualify or just to get a better interest rate. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, typically it's like a 10 or 15 minute conversation, usually depending on the, you know, how many questions it could be a half an hour conversation getting to know them. It's building that trust really. Sure. And then, um, the loan application is something that they, you know, we can do on, we can do over the phone. I usually offer options. 
Uh, most people want to do it online. Yeah. And then uh, what I tell them is, you know, don't don't get it perfect. You know, don't worry about getting it perfect. It's a working document. And then um, once I receive it, I get notified electronically, and then I'll I'll jump into your loan file. I'll look at it, review it, run credit, and then get back to you. And I usually send an email letting them know that I've received it and reviewed it and schedule a conversation. And that conversation is really the one that's the more detailed conversation because I, I go through a pretty complete summary of, you know, letting them go through the application, make sure I don't have any questions, make sure I understand, you know, the disposition of their home, uh, what they're thinking as far as down payment, um, where they, where the funds coming from, how's their income work and get through that. And then I explain to them and summarize the pre-approval and that there's three main areas we look at. We look at the credit and I always tell them what a mortgage credit report is, how it's different than a consumer credit report. Um, let them know their scores and let them know that, you know, kind of where that puts them as far as qualifying it's different tiers. And then, uh, and does that have an impact? Does your credit score have an impact on your interest rate? Yeah. It's probably the most, the, the one area that's that most impacts your interest rate. Yeah. And then that, you know, secondly, we look at, um, assets and really what we're trying to do is provide proof that you have the assets needed for the transaction that we're pre-approving you for. If you're looking to put 20% down, then, you know, we need to be able to provide proof that you have 20%. That you have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of go through that. And sometimes it's, you know, they're going to pull money from a 401k or they have yeah. gift ideas and, and go through that. And then thirdly is, uh, is the income and not to get into too much detail, but it's a simple calculation that we use. And I try to explain that to them that it's a debt to income ratio. And what does that mean? What is debt to income? So debt to income is the proposed payment on the new home. So you, you know, depending on the program, typically a 30 year fix is what we start with and so that principal and interest payment based on the interest rate and the loan amount that they've chosen. Um, to go back a step, I usually try to pre-approve people at what they see as their highest price point that they think they'd be interested in. I always feel like that's the best way to sure. start. And then, um, so the principal and interest payment, and then you add the taxes and insurance and possibly an HOA and possibly mortgage insurance. So that's the proposed payment plus any debts, like um, if there's student loan debt or if there's a car payment any of those types of debts, credit card payments, you add that and then you take that total and you divide it into their gross monthly income. And that percentage, typically Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, who you know, govern most of the underwriting guidelines that we have to adhere to, or it's a 50% threshold. And so I kind of tell them where they come in at. And then I kind of go back. So, you know, credit's great. You know, assets, certainly you have what you need to do what you're trying to do here. And then you know, depending on the debt to income ratio, I'm like, a lot of times they qualify for way more than what they're trying to do. And people like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then from there, not to go too detailed, I usually, the next steps would be to make sure we have the supporting documents because a pre-qualification would be that process, but not really verifying the income and the assets. So we need to make sure a lot of times our system prompts them to support to upload those documents, but sometimes I don't have them all. So yeah. go over that, that list and then, um, let them know that I'll send them a pre-approval letter generic and copy the agent on it. And from there, what I recommend that they do is once they find, as they start their home search, 
and typically we're talking to them before they've actively started. Not always. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> buying a house to that. <laughs> yeah. The car cuts before the horse. But yeah, my, I, at them look, it, it always a good idea for let me know and then I can run a payment and, you know, yeah. provide an estimate that's detailed and shows you, that, you know, the numbers and the breakdown. And then if that looks good and you decide to pursue an offer, then I'll run it, rerun it through the automated underwriting system. Um, and once we do that, then I can update the pre-approval that's specific to that property. And then, yeah. I don't know if you meant for me to go that detail, but that's well, fine. no, I mean, and, and then I guess I just next step, let's say they're pre-approved, they get that home. You know, oftentimes one of the things we hear is, "How oh, I got to do so much paperwork." Well, a, can you talk about is it really as much as it seems like, or is it what's necessary? And and B. Why is it necessary? <laughs> well, so most of the time, well, all the time, it's not a formal loan application at that point, you know? So they haven't, I mean, they, we, we have a working document. It's a prospect file. Um, and we've pre-approved them. But a formal, you know, once it's under contract, then I, the next step is to have another follow-up conversation to kind of let them know what has to happen from here. And usually I... You know, there's loan disclosures that have to be sent, and that's that's really what formalizes loan. So I kind of go through and tell them what that's all about, and really 90% of that, Davis, is just standard boilerplate mortgage loan disclosures. They they tend to increase every year, <laughs> and they're mainly consumer protection. And there's a few things that are specific to them. So I kind of go through what those are. It's the loan estimate, and the loan application, yeah. and and. And at that stage, they're just working documents. So I let them know, that, hey, you know, there might be changes need to be made, but just know, let us know, and there'll be a final loan application and a final loan estimate, which is the closing disclosure. Um, the loan disclosures are typically, can be signed electronically, so it's not really a, a big deal. But then that's when the processing of the loan starts. So usually up front we've gotten a lot of the documentation so it shouldn't be a whole lot so the next step is to order the appraisal and you know typically we collect for that up front so there is some you know paperwork that goes with that um and then they typically fill out paperwork for the attorney too which they kind of cord you know, kind of put in your basket yeah, too. yeah 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 so that, that i mean i think there's a lot that comes at them yeah so i always tell i always tell the referral partner i said look it's real common for the consumer, the buyer to be out there, you know, a lot of times, especially the last two years, it takes, you know, it might take six months to find that, find the right home. And they're not, the buyers, not, you know, when they get on their contract, their natural thing is just to go, <laughs> it's rest time. Yeah. Right? No, it's and go I'm time. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I need 48 hours of focus, you know, yeah. and, and that, that typically is what, it takes 48 to 72 hours up front to sign the loan disclosures, get the appraisal order, get the title work ordered. And um, and then from there, it's once they, you know, this, we have the supporting documentation to move forward, there's not a whole lot that comes after that. Um, they're usually, so the first thing that happens is the process, loan processor submits it and we receive a conditional loan approval. So it's just part of the process. So I've never seen an underwriter approve it final right. issue a final i think maybe a few times but a final approval you know first time. based on the first look at it so i always tell folks look it's part of the process and there'll be maybe a few things that we'll need and usually it is just a couple of things so it's that yeah. 
I usually set it up to where it's going to, I go, this is not that much fun. <laughs> I mean, People will just if, you think mentally, if you set the expectation in your mentally that you're really, this is a little bit of a pain in the tail. And then I think if, and you're able to respond quickly and not, you know, argue us about everything that we're asking for. Because <laughs> there's generally a reason for yeah. us asking. Yeah. And, um, and usually, I, so I have that conversation. They're usually, I'll go, yeah. And I said, 99% of the time, you're going to think this process was easy. So it's, I think it's a little bit about setting the expectations up front. Yeah. But I think the famous thing or a lot of what people experience is lenders and underwriters asking for things last minute. Yeah. And that really just shouldn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm not saying we're perfect by any stretch, sure. but it shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, so... One of the things I think is important here too is, and I'm wondering if we can talk about it, but, um, you know, like most correspondent lenders, as soon as you close it, it's likely leaving cross country. Is that right? There's certainly a chance. Now we, we do service a large percentage of our conventional loans. What does that mean? Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, it's through a subservicer, but it still has cross countries logo on it it's still really cross-country but it's through a, a subservicer and it's just a, a third party that's helping facilitate collect. the servicing yeah collect exactly um i don't know behind the scenes what makes the decision on whether they sell it or keep it but on conventional loans i think it's like 90 percent that we keep gotcha and i always go over that with and there's no real difference i mean they're paying cross-country right. or they're paying somebody else yeah, but is that part of the reason why paperwork and the collection of documentations? A, it's because of what we talked about happened in two thousand eight. But as part of that reason too, is because the loan may or may not get sold post closing. Is yeah, I think that some of the disclosures are. It puts the. It's always about saleability, so you you need to have the documentation in the file in the event the lender wants to reserve the right to transfer the service and have the option yeah so there's certain disclosures that need to be in there for that to be possible yeah yeah one thing that i'm curious about um where does cross country get the money to win so i'm going to closing they're lending me three hundred thousand dollars where's that money coming from yeah it's great so a lot, a lot different thing well i mean uh, there's really three types of mortgage company well, more than that but the the bigger banks and then the correspondent lenders that are kind of in the middle and then the brokers. Well, a broker doesn't use their own money. Um, now they have resources, you know, a lot more resources to choose from. Um, but a correspondent lender, also known as a mortgage bank, has warehousing lines um, that they use and close and fund in their own name. And, you know, bigger companies like Cross Country have multiple, multiple warehousing lines and have the funding ability through that. And so they're just pulling off that and closing and then making the decision service or to sell. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot, I'm sure on the back end, there's a lot that goes into that. And, um, I've never really been part of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, I'm sure technology has completely changed your business since you started 13 years ago, 14 years ago. What kind of impact has it had and what kind of impact do you think it'll have over the next five years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think back, I mean, this is really gonna age me, but I mean, I uh, 
I mean, we met with all our borrowers. We actually collected in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and um, funny story though. I mean, the business hadn't really changed that much. There's always last minute things that go on. Yeah. And so this is uh, we were heck in the D.C. area. We were headquartered in Woodbridge, Virginia, and um, and I, I think our office our office was in Bethesda at the time. And you know, there's always things that happen last minute. So. That's not a big deal in today's world. You just like redo the package and resend it through yeah. internet uh, electronically. But back then it was about driving down the wood bridge, <laughs> run into the attorney. We didn't have phones. So an attorney would call you a 911 on your pager. You'd have to, you'd have to pull off the beltway and find a pay phone. phone. No, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like the next 10 years, we're going to continue to streamline the process. I, I think the days of, you know, I think they're have e-signings mostly. I think that's going to, I mean, we only, we have the capacity. Now. Why don't we now? Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit jurisdictional. I think we're really close. Yeah. Um, I think most attorneys are getting comfortable with it, so it's not far. Yeah. We're doing hybrids all the time now. So What's that? So that's where... I'd say 60% of the documents are sent ahead of time. Now they have to be dated the same day of closing. So what we're doing is we're giving the borrower the option to do a hybrid closing and kind of explaining that process. And most people are picking it. Um, and we send the documents a few days ahead of time so that they can review them and then let them know you're going to get the copy to sign like in your inbox at one in the morning. Um, and so when you wake up, just sign those. And then when you go to your closing, you're going to sign you know, the loan application, the promissory note, the deed of trust, the closing disclosure, and the ALTA, and some of those more important documents. And the attorney will be able to go through those. But it goes from a 45-minute closing to about a 15-minute closing. And so we're doing most mostly that now. It seems to be a good step to the e-signing because I think yeah. people are pretty comfortable having an attorney explain things to them. Yeah. And I think some people might, it's going to take a while for us to get away from that to some degree. Are there any changes on the horizon technology-wise with the underwriting process or the verification? Some of the things that we talked about, you know, that people do have some angst about sometimes. Is there anything out there that's making that easier? Yeah, I mean, right now, most companies are um, are have authorized a third party to allow verification of employment. So we can usually get those without in matter of minutes. Now, not all companies are, you know, allowing it, but I'd say, I mean, it's almost. And this is the employer that you're calling that allows that. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Because yes. if you're trying to call Betty Sue in HR, yeah. she doesn't answer. That is an call, old but. antiquated I mean, it still has to be done in some cases, but not not as often. So that has that has changed quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And there's, we still have to do a verbal verification of appointment as you get closer to to closing. But you know, a lot of times we're getting verifications of employment, written verifications of employment, so we can average overtime and bonus income and commission income. But a lot of times, what we're doing is we're so many people have the access to their pay stubs historically through like a portal through ADP or pay, PayCorp and they can, so we can kind of circumvent the whole verification of employment process by doing that. Gotcha. Cause W2 show total earnings, but the pay stuff breaks it all down. Breaks it down. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think a lot of times people have that you know misconception that they need to have this like perfect profile coming into the gate. And I think what I'm hearing is, oh, you know, there's there's a lot of things that no I figured time, out on the back end. A lot of times by waiting, you you prolong the situation because we could have told you, um, you don't need to do anything, or this is what you need yeah. to do. Um, and a lot of times it's not for qualifying purposes. I mean. There's tiers for, you know, improving your situation with interest rates. Um, an example would be like, you know, a conventional loan, if you have a, a 715 credit score, there's, you know, that threshold of 720. Well, you're going to get a little bit better mortgage insurance rate if you're putting less than 20% down and you're going to get a better interest rate if you get it to 720. And a lot of times that's just us telling them, hey, you can pay that credit card down $500 balance we can do a rescore for you and get it up and it's going to improve your, your payment. And so a lot that we spend a lot of time with, and says so that, you know, just putting people in a better position. Sometimes they want to put $20,000 down payment. Well, that might be a 7% down payment. Well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because mortgage insurance is based on 5% increments. It might be better to just put 5% down and run the payments and, um, you know, they might be looking at making a 15 or 10% down payment where it might make sense to pay off a $10,000 car with a $400 payment. Yeah. And so we're trying to, you know, guide you need them to see the them. whole big picture. Yeah. First. Yeah. And, um, so the earlier folks do that and get ready at, at you know, if there are things that need to be tweaked, we can help them with it. Uh, good. All right. Well, let's bring it home. I got a couple of last questions for you. One, uh, where are we going in 2023? Where do rates, as we sit here today, we're at six or so, six and a quarter maybe. Where are we at by the end of the year? I think And right. we're going to hold you to this, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I've heard so many predictions, right? Yeah. Um, but my honest opinion is that we're going we're gonna to see them continue to stabilize with a, a downward trend. Um, May's a, a big month. Um, inflationary data should be pretty positive for bonds um based on the charge from the previous year um i could see them in the by the end of the second quarter i could see them in the high fives 5.75 percent and i i think that's the big question fair beyond that (laughs) i think the big question is will they go into the fours yeah and i just i don't really know for sure i mean that would be great because i think that four percent if it got into the fours, I think the folks that, um, at some point folks that have home that they possibly want to sell, they're thinking about moving, but they don't want to leave a 3% rate or a 2.7% rate. Um, they might do it over, for over time. Life will take over, you know, a little bit on some of those decisions, but All I right. think next year, I mean, this year, if it gets into the fours, that decision might get a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, I think that's the threshold. It's hard to know for sure. All right. So next is, uh, you know, I, I think there are a lot of thoughts and opinions on mortgage and lending. And I'm wondering what are a few things or one thing even that you wish people knew about your business that maybe they don't. You know, I, there's, there's some misconceptions. I mean, I, I think the thing is we're all a partner, you know, so we, um, are working in in your best interest. We're, and sometimes I, I feel like folks 
avoid lenders big time, you know, or like, it's like going to the dentist. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we're here to help. And I think one thing is, you know, what's your interest rate? Um, well, that's a really hard question. <laughs> and I think it complicates it, Davis, because some of the credit unions and banks just, they do, throw it out they, there. They, they throw rates out there. But for most correspondent lenders, um, it's based on so many things. Um, there's uh, loan level adjustments that are on credit scores, loan to value, you know, type of property. I mean, just everything. So, um, I can usually give a range and I think it frustrates some folks, you know, yeah. so, but yeah, I think the misconception is we can just, you know, what is your daily rate? Well, that's depends on your situation. Yeah. Yeah. It really varies depending on your situation. Yeah. All right. Last question. What's the most memorable thing someone has ever done for you? <laughs> yeah. You gave me a warning on this. <laughs> <laughs> so personally, I, I don't know if there's one thing it's, but there's been, plenty of people that I call them champions in your life, you know, the ones yeah. that um, believe in you and, and giving your co confidence through life. And of course my parents and some of my best high school and college friends and my minister and that I grew up with was definitely one of those. And um, some of my childhood friends, parents, you know, just the memories and things yeah. that you know, build that foundation to a point where you're at today. Yeah. Um, it takes a village kind of thing. And I, I, there's not one specific thing personally. I just have been blessed, you know, with a lot of good people helping me along the way. Um, and then business wise, it's interesting. I, when I first got out of college, I worked for a kind of a land development company that kind of played the middleman between, uh, big banks and builders, um, builders trying to get acquisition development, construction financing. And, and in the late, no, it was the late 80s, early 90s that the SNL crisis occurred. So a lot of that, that whole, you know, real estate just yeah. shut down. Builders weren't, you know, so I got into um, the mortgage business um, kind of out of default, really. Um, and it allowed me to call on home builders and yeah. ended up working. And I would say I was 26, 27, and I was fairly new. I mean, really new and green in the mortgage business. And I had a guy that he was president of the bank and ran the mortgage company, and he believed in me. He made me a manager at 26, 27. That That's awesome. changed my life. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. I and it was, that. I don't know if everybody in the organization agreed with the decision. It was his decision. But he was right. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, that's awesome. Well, this has been awesome, Davis. So well, appreciate thank it. You for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. It's great. Yeah, appreciate it. I know. Well. Good, Chris. Yeah. Was it okay? I had.